0: And welcome, everybody, to a special U.S. Memorial Day edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And as I always say at the beginning of my program, and I should make it a little bit more clear now why I do this, you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Jake Jake, NY, Jake twice, at Jake, Jake NY. I'm also on Facebook at Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the topics that I'm referring to are linked to there. Uh, so if you go on my Twitter feed today, and if you're listening to this on Memorial Day or sometime later in the week, you might have to scroll down to early Monday, uh, but you'll find uh, some of the, the, the things I'm talking about in more detail. So that when I refer to them here, if you're not 100% sure what I'm talking about and you want a little bit more information about it, you can find it there. One of the nice things about social media is I can simultaneously uh, provide citations in a way that's a little bit more interesting than footnotes, and uh, give people a little bit more of a chance to get into some of the things that I'm talking about, because not everybody has the same experiences and can know uh, the facts that I'm talking about. Um, Memorial Day here in the United States has become something that really is, I think, lacking in the way that it's observed. Uh, But it's also quite, quite informative, about the, the dichotomy in this country that continues to grow, that it's become more and more separated in the way that we talk about people who have served and died in the armed forces and the way that we talk about the way that we try to honor them and the way that we try to think about them. One of the first things that is, I, I'll start with, like, I think, the least bothersome thing, and this to me is not the biggest deal in the world, It's not something to get angry about, but I do think it's still worth noting, not to be annoying, but just to be factual and to be fair. A lot of people conflate, in other words, they confuse, they mix up, a lot of people conflate Memorial Day and Veterans Day. In other words, on Memorial Day, which is meant to literally remember our troops and sailors and other armed forces uh, personnel who have died in conflicts or died in service. Sometimes people die in training, as you know. So it's this is for the people who have died in service to their country while in the armed forces. And that's what Memorial Day is for. We're supposed to remember them. As you know, there are ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery and a lot of national cemeteries. Arlington is obviously the most famous one. But there are other military cemeteries, not only here in the United States, but of course overseas. So many of our Soldiers had died overseas, particularly in World War I and World War II. And as we approach another important day, and that's going to be next, uh, just a couple of weeks from now, less than two weeks from now, uh, when we hit June 6th, that's going to be the 75th anniversary of, the, uh, of D-Day, the, landing at, the Allied landing at Normandy Beach. And there's a big, you know, there's a number of American cemeteries there. It's just so many men died American men died there; that they had to. They had to have an American cemetery there. Um, anyway, uh, that's what Memorial Day is for: for American soldiers, sailors, troops of all kinds, personnel who have died in service, particularly in our wars. And Veterans Day is to honor everyone who's ever served in the armed forces. You don't have to die to be honored on on Veterans Day. And again. <laughs> To me, this is a small, it's a a small thing. It's not the biggest problem that people conflate it. But I do want to make that clear because I think a lot of people um, make living veterans and active duty soldiers uncomfortable when they go over to them on Memorial Day and say, oh, on Memorial Day, I want to thank you for your service. And they're thinking about maybe a buddy or someone that they served with who did die in service. And they're thinking, boy, I'm not the person to be honored today. In other words, I'm not the one who the people like you and me who have not served in the armed forces and haven't had that experience aren't the ones who I think are made to feel uncomfortable on Memorial Day if they're thanked for serving. Because that's not the issue. The issue is not that we served that somebody served. The issue is that somebody died. So, to me that's a big issue that you know, and again, not a big issue. That's just a, a, a fact that I think that people should remember. This is not the day to do that. Now, if you know someone who either served or is serving in the armed forces, this could be a good time to talk to them and say, do you have someone that you served with who died in service? And how has that been like? And how would you like him or her to be remembered? I'm here to, I'm here to learn about it. Because that, that's a nice that's a nice way to honor uh somebody who is not only passed away but living in the armed services. So I think I just like to make that point because I think that it makes our active duty and living veterans uncomfortable to be honored and talked about on Memorial Day when they know that this is a this is a, a holiday or this is a day to to mark those who aren't as lucky as they were, those who didn't make it through. So just think about them. This is about them and not about correcting you and me. This is about making them feel a little bit better. You know, when I think about the United States and Memorial Day, I'm sure many of you think about this as well. I think about how differently it's done in Israel. And we know all the reasons why it's so different in Israel, but just to go through some of the things that happen, just like on Holocaust Memorial Day, they sound that national alarm siren and you have that dramatic video every year where people driving on busy highways pull over and stand outside their cars and everything just stops for the time that I guess it's like a two-minute uh, siren, and that's a big deal. It's just such an emotional thing, and it's really important uh, that, that, that people recognize fallen soldiers in that way. And I do really wish we did that in the United States. I think that that would be a, a small thing for us to do here uh, in this country, uh, just to remember our, our soldiers. But as I am going to get into more detail about, as, during the course of this edition of Novak Now, here in the Nachum Siegel Network, what we're having, what we're going through in here in the United States, is sadly this tremendous disconnect between those of us who have not served in the armed services, those of us who don't have someone who we know who, who died in in service to the country, and those of us who do. And Israel, of course, sadly, but also for the continuity of the nation, does. I mean you're not going to find too many people in Israel who don't know someone who has been who has died either in a uh a military action or someone who's died in a terrorist attack. Uh it's one of the things that has you know made Israel a very unique country and it's very 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 sad but it's also again it's made it a contiguous nation in 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 in, in a ways that you know it's a Jewish commu- it's 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 a Jewish state so of course there's a lot of differences of, of differences of opinion and there's plenty of political divisions in Israel, but that is one thing that just about every Israeli shares with the other, another Israeli, and that is personal knowledge of someone who has died in attacks, either military, either formal military attacks or terrorism. Of course, in some ways, it just doesn't seem to make a difference. And of course, you have a national draft in Israel, which basically touches everyone and everyone's live, lives in Israel. I wish it would touch more. We've talked about this in the past. I, I do feel that there should be more participation. In the, Israeli mili- in the Israeli military, but thankfully, because of the overall growth of the population and because of technology, the amount of time that Israelis have to serve in as far as just if they're just drafted, if they're not looking to make a career of the military, the amount of time that Israelis have to serve after they finish high school has been reduced, has been reduced. Boys used to have to do a full four years. It's now less than three years, which is a huge difference. You know, <laughs> talking about more than a 30 percent reduction in time. And, you know, girls are still doing the basic two-year service, but of course, as you probably know, there are many different options for girls who go into, and I should really call them women, women who go into the IDF for their uh, obligatory service. So how can we get to that point where Israel is without having to have an, a, such an addition, massive, a massive loss of life? I mean, if the percentage of American deaths... We're, we're, we're similar to Israeli deaths and the way that people know someone who has died or a family that has suffered a, a bereavement because of, of, of wars, uh, obviously the United States would have to have a lot more dead troops and we don't want that. But how can we find a way, how can we find a way to make more Americans aware of what it is like to be in the military, what it is like to make that sacrifice, and more importantly, I think, because it's a little bit of a happier resolution to honor those who've already made that sacrifice and how can we do that how can we find a better way to do that well there are some people here in the United States it's not a hugely popular it's not an immensely popular position but there are some people here in the United States who want to see the draft reimposed now this for me I, I think ever since I was well too young to even be drafted if there were there had been a draft in this country has been a huge issue for me in things that I've written about, things that I've talked about over the years, both as an adult and even as a as a student. Because I think this is not an open and shut debate. I do have a conclusion that I have pretty much not wavered from over the last 30 plus years since the time that I had to register for the draft. Uh, I registered for the draft right during my senior year of high school, like I was supposed to, and was eligible for the draft until I was 26, like you do in this country. But I have come to the same conclusion very, very regularly. But again, I don't believe this is an open and shut case. The draft has to be looked at from a number of different points of view. And I think that when we talk about the draft in this country, we mostly focus on the point of view of American culture. In other words, kind of like the topic I've begun, and I'm going to focus mostly on this show, which is the cultural effect on this country. What is the fact that we haven't had a draft. What has that done to America's understanding of, the, of of military service? What has that done for a lot of young people in this country who come out of high school and even come out of college without a lot of direction in life? We know about this now. For those of you who, lis- who are listening who have kids, um, hopefully most of you are experiencing a situation where they knew what they wanted to do and they have gainful employment coming out of college or high school and all that. But a big crisis that we're facing here in America, which has pushed the age of adulthood much later in this country, is the fact that you have a lot of kids graduating from colleges with big student loans, and they still don't know what to do with their lives. And they don't see a purpose. And I really do feel from a cultural standpoint, bringing back the draft might, might help that. Now, again, I haven't given you my conclusion about the draft, so don't jump to any conclusions yourselves about what I'm going to say about pro or con on the draft. But... If we did have a draft in this country that was effective for students who don't go to college after they finish high school or after they finish college be effective for them, I think it would help solve some of the problems that we're seeing in young children who come out of schooling years in this country without really a purpose. You know, We are constantly telling our children, well, you need to do well in school and you should try to find yourself something that you like to do. But other than that, there's, there are going to be no requirements of you. We're not going to, you know. Listen, we've we've experienced this in the religious community. We know that those of our, our our counter our fellow Americans who are not as religious have absolutely made that requirement, which was a requirement, which was a requirement for most Americans for many many years, no longer a requirement. We don't require our kids. So this is my long way of saying we don't require our kids to to go to. Uh, religious services anymore, for the most part. That's not what we do in America. We don't require our, our children to really show a lot of respect and time and, and I would say, physical catering to their elders. Uh, there was a time when families would go and you would really almost slavishly worship the grandparents. You'd, you'd visit them every weekend and you'd do that. We don't do that anymore so much. A lot of it has to do with the fact that most of us live kind of far away from our grandparents in this country. We don't live that close. I don't know about most of us. That's kind of a Census Bureau question, but a good many many more of us don't compared to the way it was 60, 70 years ago. So I do think the, tra- the draft would help that. I believe that for the poorest class of Americans, where fatherhood is a rarity, where boys and girls grow up without males in the home at a much higher rate than wealthier American families... Uh, we know for a fact that the draft in the African-American community in the middle part of the 20th century, in the early parts of the 20th century, was very positive. It brought African-Americans into the working world. It brought African-Americans in contact with fellow African-Americans who were authority figures and who cared about their development. Um, I urge you, if you haven't seen, for example, the movie Hidden Figures, a very good movie about the African-American women who were involved in the NASA space program. And not to give anything away in the movie too much, I'm not going to have too much of a spoiler alert here, but it was just so refreshing to see a movie about African American life, a historically based movie about African American, you know, one aspect of African American life in this country that wasn't all about victimhood and sadness and racism and all that. I mean, look, there were aspects of that, of course, but it was really uplifting. The film was uplifting and it kind of was the message was, hey, you work hard and you persevere and you can be very successful, even if you are a racial minority in this country, even at a time fi- more than 50 years ago when it was harder to do that. It was very, very positive. And there was one character in the movie who was a colonel in the army. And he's living in the community. He's not on a base somewhere only where you don't see him. He's, a, he's, a, he's an African-American man who's a colonel in the U.S. Army. And yes, before the Korean War, the units in the American army were segregated until president Truman desegregated the armed forces during the Korean War. And all of that and you can talk about how there weren't you know black generals and black admirals absolutely it's it's absolutely worth discussing. But the point is is that there still were a lot of black high ranking officers in this country and there still are and you know there's even more now. But even at a time when African Americans couldn't reach management positions in the the, the civilian world because of the armed forces, they were able to reach high-level management positions, at least in the command of other African Americans, and in many cases, also white Americans after the Korean War. And that was a real positive thing. And the elimination of the draft has had a, taken a toll on the black community. It's also been a positive. Now, here's where I'm going to make my argument about how my ultimate conclusion is That it is good that we don't have a draft. Because as we make... Again, we make this argument in America, 90% of the time, we're talking about how it affects the civilian culture in this country. So my two examples, were just two, of how the elimination of the draft has hurt the civilian culture in this country, is that we've lost that sense of purpose that I think a lot of young people, both white and black, got from being in the armed forces and the perspective that it gave them. And I think it also has hurt the African-American community because it brought into their lives, uh, a chance for advancement, a chance for understanding that they, they, they matter. But what bothers me about only discovering, discussing the draft on a cultural level is <laughs> the draft is a military thing. And it has to be discussed on military terms first and foremost. And that is why, overall, I think it's a good thing that we don't have a draft in this country. Because here are a couple of the reasons. The biggest reason is the all-volunteer army that we've had in this country since President Nixon eliminated the draft in the early 1970s is, by all accounts, there's not one military expert in the world who will tell you that the all-volunteer army that the United States has switched over to since then isn't vastly superior to the draft-based army that we had before the 1970s. So in other words, if you're having a military draft so that you can protect your country and that you can have a strong military, uh, then the point is you want to have a strong military, and the draft was making it weaker. The draft was bringing in too many people who were not really fit for service for and many, other, many reasons. And the all-volunteer army brings in people who are, listen, there are plenty of people who volunteer who are not fit for service. I'm not saying everyone who volunteers and goes to the recruiting center is fit for service. But the, the, the percentages are off the charts better. And so we get a better product, and the United, United States military at just about every objective level is better than it was during the time of the draft. And to me, that's the ultimate arbiter. Just because the return, bringing back the draft would have some positive cultural effects on this country, uh, and then they wouldn't be all positive, but it would have some positive effects, then I, it's just not a good enough reason. The draft is not good overall because it doesn't make our military better. It makes it worse. And our military has been better ever since. So, And like I said, I've, I've come to that conclusion from many different paths over the last 30 years, and I never come to a different conclusion Um, I could be wrong, let's, but but if I'm wrong, it's going to have to be, I'm going to, someone who has real military experience and real military expertise is going to have to prove me wrong. And, um, I'll be willing to listen, but so far, everyone who has that, those kinds of credentials has agreed with me on that. So where does that leave us here on Memorial Day? Where does that leave us in in my, my, the, the, the point I'm trying to make from the beginning of this program, which is this dichotomy, this, the separation, this separate path. That so many Americans are on right now. You have parts of this country where everybody knows someone who has served in the armed forces and parts of this country where the opposite is true. Nobody knows anybody who's served in the armed forces. Nobody knows anyone who is serving in the armed forces. Nobody knows anybody who has been injured or killed in the, in the United States armed forces. You know, and, and that huge difference between us and Israel where everyone has that experience. So what can we do about that? And what are the issues here? Now this really hit me uh, as a New Yorker, back during the Gulf War. I remember there was a day I was off of work, but it was a weekday. It was a work day, but I personally had a day off. And I was walking around Manhattan doing some personal errands. And I spent, I, I, those of you who know me, I like to walk a lot. If I can walk miles and miles a day, I'm happy. And I, I walked, I mean, a huge amount of the island of Manhattan, I, I, I crossed on foot that day. And at one point I had to go to the post office. So I had been walking into stores. I had been walking into offices. I had been walking uh, in public places and parks. And this was at the height of the Gulf War. And I wasn't thinking about the Gulf War because there was no representation of America. There was no inkling that America was at war at that moment at any of the places that I walked to until I got to the post office. And then I got to the post office and then I saw a couple of things. there. There were A couple of bins there, and very, very prominent signs at the post office in Manhattan. This was somewhere on the far west side. Not the big post office behind Penn Station, but somewhere in that area. And there were two bins. There was a bin to donate clothing on behalf of military families, and there was a bin to donate used cell phones. This was before the iPhone, so this was like your used flip phone or something. And I thought to myself, my goodness. I've just spent the day walking up and down the largest, most populated city in the United States of America. And there was no, you would have no inkling in the world that we were at war, that almost all of our armed forces were engaged at that moment in a war. And it wasn't until I got to the post office, you know, uh, a quasi-official government agency, the Post Office, will go on and on about how they're independent. But of course, they have all their bills paid for by the government, so I'm not going to give them a pass on that. It wasn't until you got into a quasi-government agency like the Post Office that you didn't even knew we were at war, and I felt really bad about that. I felt really bad about that. How could the biggest city in America not even have any kind of acknowledgement that we were at war at that time? And I guarantee you that if I had been walking through Birmingham, Alabama, or Jacksonville, Florida, or Phoenix, Arizona, that I would have run into many more reminders that we were at war. And it, I felt bad about it, and I felt worried about it. Because I felt like, again, as good as it is that we have a volunteer army and not a draft, it's not good that so much of America doesn't have any connection to our troops, even when they're engaged in battle, let alone years later, as we are now, talking about Memorial Day. And that, to me, is very, very disturbing. Very disturbing. So how can we fix that? How can we fix that? A couple of years ago, you might remember, there was a big controversy, and the controversy continues. It just started a couple of years ago when President Trump said he wanted to have a big July 4th military-style parade like the Bastille Day parade that they have in France. And I've put on my Twitter feed a debate on NPR that I participated in in the days after President Trump first made that proposal. And the news media in general really, really howled about it. And they continue to do so. They really go after President Trump and anyone who wants to have this parade. They say it's reminiscent of fascist parades, reminiscent reminiscent of the Soviet Union parades, where they have like those big missiles that go down the street. You guys know what I'm talking about. They talk about how it's a cost. And most of all, they say this is just something to honor Donald Trump. He's just doing this to support himself. And... Those arguments, I think, are are points that are, believe it or not, worth making. I I, I don't discount all of them, uh, especially the last one, because anything that a politician does is done for self-aggrandizement or to improve his or her political stature. You know, it's amazing to me how a politician can call for any kind of a program that spends other people's money, and half the country will say, oh, what a great saint that this person has called for this. I mean, there's not even one moment spent to discuss, hey, could they just be doing this to get votes? Could they just be doing this to get donations? Could they just be doing this to get the, 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 the support of uh, admiration without actually caring about the results? They're just sort of supporting a policy? That's what 99% of politicians do. But Donald Trump says we should have a military parade, and suddenly the news media is actually doing the job that they should be doing, and they're questioning his personal motives of it. They never do that with anybody else, and they don't do it in retrospect on some of the other programs that we've had in this country that have been about self-aggrandizement and not about their, their efficiency. But that aside, I appeared on this NPR debate, and again, I put it on my Twitter feed so you can hear it, to, in support of the parade. And the reason why I was supporting the parade, as you might be able to guess, is because I wanted some more events in this country to occur that everyone would watch, or at least a, a large audience would watch, so that we could somehow become more connected with our men and women in the armed forces and figure out that they're people and they're not pretend characters, they're not action figures, and they really do exist. It's very, very important. And if you want to know how bad things can get when we forget about that, I want to give you an example. It's another thing I put up on my Twitter feed. There was a, a column, an editorial column in the L- LA Times written in 2006 by a columnist named Joel Stein, who was a columnist there for many years. He, he stepped down in 2017. And it was a column in 2006 where he wrote about how he doesn't support the troops. You know that cliche a lot of us hear, well, I don't support the war in X, Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever, but I do support the troops. And he was writing an editorial about how he doesn't support the troops. He doesn't support the wars. And since the United States are, uh, Armed Forces are volunteer, he doesn't f- he couldn't find a way to separate the, the troops from the war that he opposed. And I thought to myself, well, gee, has, has Joel Stein ever sat down for a long time and talked to any of these troops? I don't know. He never said that he did, by the way. Um, has he ever really met anyone who has been through this? And that was around the same time that i had been, you know, a couple of years after I had walked around all of Manhattan and seen no acknowledgement that the United States was at war at that time. And it just hit me, here's the problem. We don't really know much about the men and women who are fighting our wars, but we hear about the wars all the time in the news. So our, I, we decide what their experiences are without having to, without hearing from them. And so if you look at Hollywood movies and you look at television shows, Uh, this isn't such a big topic, a plot line on television shows and movies anymore as we get further and further away from the Iraq War. But if you watch those TV shows and movies, either from a few years ago or now when they do pick up this plot, you'll notice a very, very similar pattern. Anyone in those movies or TV shows who fought in the Iraq War is depicted in one of three ways. Either really, 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 really messed up because of their experiences in the war, they're messed up mentally, really, 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 really uh, injured physically, or number three, which we see sometimes, actually some kind of a bloodthirsty, murderous, horrible person, villain. Those are the three ways, those are the three possibilities you have in most Hol- in just about every Hollywood film and television show, with one exception, and that is American Sniper, the Bradley Cooper movie, which, surprise, 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 was a huge success, did extremely well. In fact, when it was doing really well in the carryover from 2014 into 2015, that was when I first said to myself, you know, Hillary Clinton might not win this presidential election. <laughs> there's, there's enough feeling in this country from the folks, the folks who really loved that movie and saw it more than once, I don't think they're Hillary voters. So it was an early indication to me that something different might happen. But I felt, and I still feel, and you can hear the whole debate if you go on my Twitter feed, that a military parade like this, within reason, I don't want to see nuclear missiles going up and down the mall in Washington, D.C., and I don't want to see 100 tanks ripping up the streets. And I don't want to see Donald Trump get, get all the credit for it. And I don't think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's trying to do it like they, what they do in Bastille Day, where they really honor the troops, and every face is seen of veterans and active duty alike. But there has to be a way here in America that we find a way to acknowledge our troops both living and dead. And today is a day to acknowledge and remember troops who have passed away, died in battle. And if you know a veteran who's alive and you know an active su- su- soldier is alive, the best way to do Memorial Day right is to ask them to tell you about their fallen comrades. That's what they want to do or they should be asked to do. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.